What's your name? Tyler Mon. List the countries in which you have done play-by-play of a live sporting event. Oh, man. The United States, Canada, Mexico, Panama, Colombia, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Italy, I guess Australia? Yeah, that counts. Counts. That's a yeah. continent, too. I didn't, it is. It is true. That's true. Yeah, I guess 10. 10 countries. List the different sports in which you have done play-by-play live. Baseball, basketball, hockey, football, uh, lacrosse, volleyball, soccer, gymnastics. Um, mm, I know there is at least one more that I am missing. But yeah, that's, uh, that's eight. At least eight, possibly nine. <laughs> Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our guest is Tyler Mon. I don't know for sure what we're going to discuss, but... It's probably going to be about hustling in this industry and taking chances and betting on yourself and the adventure involved in broadcasting and also the versatility that is involved, which is already pretty obvious. All of that and also why he spends so much money on baseball hats. (laughs) All of that hopefully is next. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. I love that open. I'll let Dylan know that you love that open, and I might even use that as as we put this together. Well, I've been a guest on your numerous podcasts um, at least (laughs) twice, if not three times. So I'm glad that uh, that you can join me on my podcast. I'm I'm excited. You emailed, and uh, and I was pumped just to see you, and then suggested this, and I was like, oh, yeah, I want to be on that show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is really cool. So... um, how many different uh, W-2s are you going to be receiving within the next 30 days? Oh, quite a few. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. you got Denver. Okay, so for our audience, University yeah. of Denver, a whole bunch right. of sports for the University of Denver. Writing for MILB.com. Correct. Two different podcasts. Correct. And then there's these international tournaments, which we're going to get into. Right. And anything else current? I know there's been a ton of other stuff in the past. Um, I believe current, that is... Uh... That is all. It's kind of interesting, though, and you'll you know attest to stuff like this. For DU, for example, I work for three different entities just from that. So I do hockey on TV, which goes through the network altitude. Uh, basketball goes through an organization called Denver Sports Properties. And then if I do other sports, which are just through like our online service, Pioneer Vision, those go through the university itself. Uh, so yeah, something like that. I'll get three different things just for broadcasting University of Denver athletics, which is very helpful. Yeah, that's gonna be really fun when you do your taxes. It's great. Okay, so two quick stories that'll hopefully make you blush before we get going. 
Uh, oh, number one, it's about a week and a half ago, and I'm looking at the schedule, and I realize, okay, so the Lobos are going to be at Colorado Springs, and I got two days off. I should record a podcast. Uh, who should I get? So I send a text message to Kevin Collins, our PR guy, and I go, hey, um, you know, who do you think would be a good podcast guest for me uh, in Colorado Springs or Denver? And you know how when you send the text message and then you can – you see that like someone immediately – you see like the three bubbles. Right. So you know the person is right. immediately writing you back. In less than three seconds, he wrote back Tyler Maher. <laughs> And I was like, that was the first person that came into my mind. So, okay, so we're definitely going to do this. <laughs> Kevin and I are boys. I paid him to do that. Okay. And then the second one, and this is, a, this is the truest of truisms. Um, so I went from the hotel in Colorado Springs and took a lift over to get a rental car. And I'm talking to this very nice woman by the name of Amanda who's getting me set up in my, uh, in my rental car. And she's you know, just making a conversation. And she goes, so what are you going to do in Denver? And I go, well, I'm driving up to see my friend, and we're going to record a podcast. She's like, oh, that's cool. What's your podcast about? And I try to explain to her about it's technically about baseball, but I try not to talk too much baseball. I try to talk about life, you know, um, away. And I say, yeah, so this guy Tyler, he's really interesting. He's broadcasted all these sports in all these different countries. And she was like, oh, my God, that is so cool. I wish I could do that. She's like, I totally want to do something like like that with my life, you know, <laughs> where I just go around the world and just do what I love. She goes, and then, and then Amanda says, so how did he do that? And I go, well. That's what we're going to find out. Did you give her a card? She gave me her card. <laughs> okay, good. Now you got to email her and be like, yes. that's a link. Subscribe, rate, and review. So, so we got to start by letting Amanda know and everybody else. Okay, so what was the – we're not going to count the United States. What yeah. was the first country in which you did a live event? Um, Australia would be uh, – so it's kind of funny. I worked for, for the Australian League, the Australian Baseball League, in our inaugural season, which was 2010-2011. Um, I was, it's kind of a fashionable place now to go. If you're a, a broadcaster or a front office person or players or whatever, I was literally the only person to go down that inaugural season for minor league baseball. I think there were like maybe four Americans who worked in the league. I was the only one who went down from MILB. We had, uh, were you already working in minor league baseball? Yeah, okay. I was. So I had just finished my second season in the Carolina league. Um, how did you even find out? I, I've always been really fascinated by international sports. I've always loved the Olympics. Um, I'm kind of a political junkie, uh, maybe less in recent years. But I, uh, I've always been really into that. I've always been really into you know sporting events where countries are competing against each other and that kind of stuff. And um, I've always been fascinated by international baseball, whether it's Japan or Korea or Taiwan or Cuba is the top place on my on my travel list that I haven't been to yet that I want to watch baseball. Um, and I was always vaguely aware that Australia had a baseball history. Um, and we had a player by the name of Matt Kennelly, our for my first season uh, in the Carolina League at Myrtle Beach. And uh, Matty, to this day, is still one of, if not the greatest guy that I've ever met working in baseball. And uh, he was from Perth. And um, we just got to talking about, you know, what baseball was like there and how he got signed and uh, the next season, he, he was with us for a little bit in 2009 then was sent back down to, to Class A Rome. He came back up in 2010 and was with us pretty much the whole year. And I had heard about this league that Major League Baseball is going to be starting uh, in Australia. So kind of bounced some ideas off of Matt and, and thought, you know, what is, it, what is the likelihood that this league is going to actually be hiring people from the States? Um, and I just took a flyer and sent an email to uh, – it's a kind of a life hack if you were a, a person who is in the spot to maybe do the same thing. The MLB.com email format is just first name dot last name at MLB.com. So Paul Archie, who is then the president or the vice president, I guess, of MLB International, who has since moved on, I just sent an email to paul.archie at MLB.com and uh, never heard directly back from him. That was, I think, 
probably maybe a month uh, into the, the minor league season um, in the Carolina League in 2010. A month later, I got an email back from a guy who ended up being the CEO of the league in Australia. Uh, he, we set up a Skype interview. He passed my stuff along to the, the GM of the team in Sydney. I interviewed with him a few times. And I got this offer to go down and work in the ABL in that inaugural season. And it's kind of funny because I went down there. I didn't do any play-by-play because we didn't. We had a broadcast situation, but it was like an online stream for home games only with a group of guys who lived in that area. Um, so I didn't do any broadcast. But I ran the, uh, the website. I did media relations. I was a public address announcer. I did all that kind of stuff. Um, and, yeah, that was sort of the first time that I was just like, how did I, how did I find myself here? Was that just an off-season gig, or did you stay year-round? I had uh, – they actually made several offers to keep me year-round, but uh, I was still with the, the Myrtle Beach Pelicans, the Carolina League. So I stayed there for about five months, I think, just that first season. And then I actually worked for them from over here for five more years. I've never been back to Australia. That was the only time that I was ever down there. It was uh, October of 2010 through February of 2011. Came back, went back to South Carolina, did my uh, last season there – uh, moved on to a different minor league team the next year. Um, but, yeah, I worked for the ABL from over here for about five years after that. What are some of the biggest highlights from the first season of a new baseball league in Australia? The the story that I remember most to this day, there, there are a lot of things that really stand out. Um, you know, the first no-hitter in ABL history was in the playoffs that year, a guy named David Welch. Uh, who lives in the States now. I think he lives in Arkansas, but a, a New South Wales guy um, threw a no-hitter uh, in the playoffs, I believe against Adelaide in the, the first round. Um, that was the first no-hitter in the, in the league. And uh, the league CEO, who was a, a kind of difficult guy to get approval from, uh, when that game was done, he was walking uh, out of the front row of the, the stands, which were down below our tiny little press box, and he looked up to me and gave me a thumbs up. From the you know the music that that we were playing and the getting the crowd into it and me as the PA guy and all that and that was kind of cool, um, but the story I remember most was opening night of that league. There had been a previous Australian baseball league that operated from I think 1989 to 2000 something like that, and it folded. So it's the first night of the league. Uh, Sydney's hosting Canberra um, at our stadium, Blue Sox Stadium, which back then was uh, Blacktown International Sports Park. And, uh, or no, back then was Blacktown Olympic Park. It hosted the, uh, the baseball and softball preliminary rounds for the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney. Um, so we had a sellout crowd, which is a small venue, but sellout crowd. How big? A couple um, thousand? I think with uh, the bleachers, the temporary bleachers that they put up and standing room tickets, we were in a couple thousand for, the, for that night. And uh, we had a, a dude come out to sing the national anthem who had been on um, Australian Idol, the, their version of American Idol. And uh, he, like, had finished runner-up, and um, the day before, I had tested our, our wireless mic, tested our sound system, gotten everything ready to go. Uh, we get set for the National Anthem in front of this sold-out crowd. I throw it down to the field, and the wireless mic does not work. And this poor dude is just standing there. You know how awkward it is with the wireless mic. You're tapping the bottom of it, checking and mm-hmm. talking into it. Nothing's happening. So... I put a you know song on or something and said like well you know momentary delay. <laughs> this poor guy and I wish I could remember his name. He comes sprinting up. The, there's no elevator, so he comes sprinting up the stairs from field level to the press box. And as soon as he got in, I wasn't really aware of the fact that he had sprinted up the stairs. So I was just like, all right, national anthem. Hand this dude a microphone. He's so out of breath. He did not, and I didn't know this at the time. It was the first time I had ever heard Advance Australia Fair their national anthem. He didn't even finish the song. 
there is one line at the end of the song that gets repeated, and he just didn't say it the second time. So people just, like, very slowly started to clap, I guess kind of aware that he had finished. But uh, I was, oh, my God, that was uh, that was the first night. And it ended up, I think it ended up a one nothing game. Sydney won on... Uh, Got a run home in the in the eighth or a two one game or something like. So it was a great game, and the rest of the night went off without a hitch. But it was definitely like that was the moment where I had that kind of Apollo thirteen thought of like, oh, I hope this is my one glitch, you know. Um, that's the thing that stands out. But I mean, that whole season, um, you know, getting uh, to travel with the team a little bit. I went on a couple of road trips with them. Uh, my mom came down for the holidays, and so we went to. You know, checked out the Great Barrier Reef and went down to the Great Ocean Road and did all that. And it was just, I was 25. And uh, it was, it's still to this day something that I'm like, I can't believe I actually did that. I love that you did that. And I'm wondering when you were thinking about this trip to Australia, how much was it based on, this is just baseball and this is my career, and how much of it is, you know what, I just want to go to Australia. And if I get to be involved in baseball, cool. It was definitely the former, um, but... It, uh, the travel thing is, I mean, you know, we both have that in common. Like I love, love travel, love international travel. Um, when I was in, uh, in high school, I went to, to Italy with my mom and mom's family is Italian, New Yorker. She was raised in East Harlem and, um, went to Ireland with my dad. My dad's family is Irish. Um, in college, I did a couple of backpacking trips in Europe with a couple of friends of mine from high school and did that, that whole thing. And I always had the thought of, I want to try living somewhere else. And Australia, obviously, is not a difficult transition to live in a place where they speak English, the culture is really similar, all that. Um, but it was something that I really wanted to challenge myself to do. And, uh, and it was awesome. I mean, it, it certainly was something that I knew was going to stand out on a resume if I was able to land that. And especially having kind of forced the issue of just trying to track somebody down if you get me an answer with this and, um, you know, being unique that nobody else went down um, that first season. But, yeah, being able to, to do it in Australia was was a very added benefit. Um, because there had already been professional baseball league in the past, how knowledgeable were the Australians who who, who came to games? Like, how much were you, did you feel like you had to, like, teach them nuances? Or how much of it was there like, no, 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 we know the sport? You know what's interesting is the, the community there that are baseball fans are massive baseball fans. And it's, you know, I, I kind of compare it to... 20 years ago, people who were really into European soccer, you know, before uh, MLS really started to take off when you had, it was a little bit more of a niche thing, um, but the fans who were into it really knowledgeable and really into it. The thing that was really cool, and I think it happened in other cities more than it happened in Sydney, the, the Sydney ballpark situation, it's a ways outside of the, the CBD. It kind of takes a while to get there, especially on like a Friday night. You know, it's difficult to get there for a, a What's CBD? Oh, the Central Business District. Okay. So when you see, um, you know, the, the Opera House and Harbor Bridge and all that, we were probably a good hour west of that. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's a ways. Um, and there's, there's trains that take you to a, a town that's, you know, maybe a 10-minute shuttle ride to the ballpark. But it's you have to want to go there. You're not just going to stumble onto a game in, uh, in Blacktown. And so, um, so the fans we got were really, really knowledgeable fans. But it was cool when you could tell that there were people there who were there for the first time. Um, and the things that they imported into the ABL that I think are the, the right idea and still to this day, you know, I follow them on, on every social media outlet and they'll post pictures of, uh, you know, they let kids onto the field, the players stay out after games to mingle with the fans and sign autographs and do all that kind of stuff. It's so accessible which um, I think is really 
hooked a lot of people who hadn't been into baseball before. Um, but the baseball fan base there was really, really knowledgeable, and uh, and that was really cool, getting to talk baseball with people you just would never expect talking baseball with. So it sounds to me like, was anyone like, oh, what's the American doing here? Or were they totally cool with that? Or they were like, no, 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 like we got this, we're okay. There were definitely, um, I would say, the vast, vast, vast majority of people were extraordinarily supportive, thought it was really cool, and almost were... Um, were grateful, I think, for the fact that people who worked in baseball wanted to be involved in this league. There were definitely a couple of people that, um, you know, were were sort of negative about it. Uh, one guy in particular who worked with the, the Blue Sox, the team that I worked for, who, when it was a club competition, the forerunner to the most recent ABL is a, a tournament called the Claxton Shield. That's the trophy that they now compete for in the ABL. used to just be like a two-week tournament. This guy kind of did my gig for that um but worked in a, a different area wouldn't wouldn't going to be able to to work for the team uh he was pretty resentful of, of the fact that somebody had come down and kind of taken that gig over um but it was it was really cool to feel the support from people who uh just really wanted the league to succeed and didn't really care what that meant now obviously there's there have been um a lot of different rules about how many on the player side, how many import players you can have, quote unquote, of uh, whether it's Americans or kids you sign from, you know, MLB organizations who are from Venezuela, the Dominican or elsewhere. Um, but it's uh, the, the ability for Americans to be involved in front offices has been really cool. And it's been neat to see how that's opened up some doors for people. I, I think weirdly and probably of the mindset that I think it should be more focused on getting Australians into those roles mm-hmm. um, and expanding it with them uh, from a front office capacity and all that. But I think it's really cool that that organizations have been so open to, to bringing guys and, and, and women over from, from the States. I might end up asking you this question a lot. So for the first time, what can we as Americans learn from Australians about baseball? Oh man, that's a good question. Um, I think the thing that I love about, Australians is that they don't complain about the sport. It's it is a sport. Trevor Bauer agrees. Right. It is a sport that is slow and that's fine with them. They watch cricket matches that go on for 5 days at a time. Like they're not complaining about all oh, these mound visits and this pitch clock and whatever. Like it's not a constant conversation of what's wrong with baseball. It's they seem to be much more into what's beautiful about baseball. And I really like that. And it's, I think the reason why the ABL has been successful, um, and especially to see the ABL playing its 10th season this year with so many people telling us how we weren't going to survive in the first five or so years. Um, the, the people who love it, love it for what it is. And they're not trying to reinvent the wheel every single season that it's, you know, obviously they've, they've done some different things with rules and they've made some changes and, and tried to adapt um, to what their league needs. But that's what I love about the fans there is that the people who are there are there because they love it and they love it the way it is. That's awesome. I love that. I feel like I could probably talk to you for an hour about Australia, but what was the second? Yeah, right. <laughs> we'll do that in the next one. What was the second country that you broadcasted outside of the United States? Um, that would have been Taiwan. Okay. The uh, 2015 Premier 12 tournament. Okay. WBS. And so how did you start to get into, okay, um, I'm doing these other gigs and these other tournaments and these other countries, and how much did Australia help that? Yeah, um, it's it's kind of interesting. I I was 25 when I moved to Australia. Um, 
I think I lived another 25 years over the next five from when I came <laughs> back from Australia to that first international tournament I did. I mean, honestly, like my, uh, it, it was, it was kind of a rough stretch for me. I had two more years in the minor leagues. I worked in, in Myrtle beach in 2011, um, and in Altoona in 2012. And then I moved back to Denver in 2013. Uh, I was in a, a relationship that went horribly and was, uh, was really toxic and bad. And, um, I kind of bottomed out personal life wise. And, uh, it was, Something that now I look back on as the only reason why any of these other doors have opened up for me is because all that stuff went so wrong at that time. Interesting. And when you're slogging through something like that and you think to yourself, like, how is this ever going to get better? Um, you know, it's, I think it's disingenuous when people say, oh, it gets better. I promise it gets better. Because for some people it doesn't. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's the way life goes. And I, I don't like sugarcoating things when it's not always going to be everybody's reality. Um, but for me, I'm very thankful that it was. And uh, so 2013, uh, moved back here, was just working for a radio station, um, wasn't really super happy. Was still doing stuff with the ABL, which was great, um, but wasn't doing any broadcasting stuff really, was uh, mostly behind the scenes at this, at this station. Um, in 2014, I got uh, an offer from the University of Denver to do lacrosse on the radio. Uh, and I had done stuff at DU in the past, my first job out of college, working back in Denver and radio. And then when I'd come home over some of the off seasons from the minor leagues, I'd do stuff uh, with DU. And they asked me to do lacrosse. And I was like, yeah, I've never done lacrosse. I don't know anything about lacrosse, but I'll, I'll give it a whirl. And I remember walking into my first meeting with their coaching staff, with their head coach, and thinking like, whatever, who's going to listen to these games? I'm not going to worry too much about lacrosse. And uh, I met their head coach, Bill Tierney, who anybody listening who is a lacrosse fan knows that name. He's the Coach K of college lacrosse, basically. He's won seven national championships at two different schools. Uh, No school in a state not touching the Atlantic Ocean had ever won a national championship. He came to Denver, and they won a national championship in like five years. Um, He is a legend. And the moment I met him, my thought was, I don't want to let this guy down. And he's, he's become a father figure to me. He's, we're really, really close. I saw him in the offices of the athletic department the other day. He gave me a big hug. And, um, and that kind of got me back into the, the groove when you've lost something. You know, I was doing minor league play-by-play for four years. I loved it. It's all I've ever wanted to do in my entire life is be a play-by-play person. And uh, 2013, I didn't have any of that. And getting it back, even with a sport that I was unfamiliar with, but being able to do live events again – kind of reinvigorated that that part of my life um and i realized how badly i needed it not that it was something that i wanted to do but it was something that i needed to do or else i was going to fade into a life that i didn't want um so 2015 comes around still doing du lacrosse and i got contacted in um i think september of 2015 by a contact that i made in australia so to bring this all back um, I hired a guy uh, who was one of the greatest human beings I've ever worked with or interacted with or anything named Andrew Reynolds, um, who is still living in, in Sydney and working in the ABL. Um, Andrew contacts me and says, hey, what would your interest level be in doing a tournament in Taiwan in like three weeks? And I was like, very high. <laughs> but how does that happen? Right. How is it three weeks from a tournament? And I had heard about this tournament that was coming up. Um, didn't really, I would not have had the first idea of like, how do I get involved with something like that? And it just so happened that uh, they were in need of broadcasters. They had had a broadcast situation that fell through, to make a long story short. They were in need of broadcasters. A person who was with the company that was selling the media rights had a contact in Australia. And somehow a bunch of us broadcasters who had had ties to the ABL got contacted for this tournament. So um, I went to, uh, to Taiwan, did the first two rounds of this. What uh, tournament is it? What level is this? So this is um, – the way I always explain it to people – 
So the organization that I work for is the World Baseball Softball Confederation, which is basically baseball's FIFA. Baseball and softball's FIFA. It used to be called the International Baseball Federation. When baseball and softball were voted out of the Olympics, they joined forces uh, to form WBSC and kind of advocate for their return to the Olympics, which they'll be back in for Tokyo this year. Um, the tournament that I worked is called Premier 12, which is basically their World Baseball Classic. It's a smaller field. It's only the top 12 teams in the world. Um, but that's pretty much it. So it was the senior level. Um, and by senior, I mean the, the pro level, not like... Yeah, it's not under 12. Right, exactly. Right, it wasn't anything like that. Um, and I have done a lot of those, the youth tournaments, but this one was their flagship event. So this was, um, you know, USA Baseball obviously doesn't send major leaguers to anything that isn't the WBC, but uh, Nippon Professional Baseball in Japan, uh, Korea Baseball Organization, uh, Chinese Professional Baseball League, which is Taiwan's uh, top-level league, they sent all-star teams. I mean, it was... Those teams were loaded, and they were loaded this past uh, November, too. Um, but, yeah, so it's, you know, you jump right in, and, and you're doing this, like, fairly major international tournament. And, uh, and yeah, I flew. I still remember, you know, the last few days leading up to it, waiting on my plane ticket and thinking, something's going to happen. This isn't going to happen. Something's going to go wrong, and I'm not going to get to do this. And all of a sudden, I'm on a flight from San Francisco to Taipei, and, you know, you wake up in a hotel and you look across the street and the sign on the side of the building across the street's in Chinese. And it, that was the next one that I was like, how did I get here? Is that your pinch me moment or was yeah. there another for that? That was, that was one of them. Um, yeah, I mean, there were definitely – my favorite story from the Taiwan tournament uh, is I – one of those – you've had these days. We all have these days as broadcasters. I one day get to the ballpark and I'm just not awake. Like, the jet lag hits, and it was, like, day three or four of the tournament. You know, I hadn't done baseball in two years, so three years at that point. So I'm getting back into doing games every day. I was exhausted. So we had, like, a 6.30 first pitch. So it's, like, 4.45, something like that. And I noticed, I'm not happy to say this, but I noticed a Starbucks across the street. And I was like, all right, I'll go in there. At least it'll be easy to order something. I'm not going to have to try to order off a Chinese menu. Go in. It's definitely a Chinese menu. <laughs> definitely not anybody who speaks English inside. And I noticed this girl in line who was definitely looking at me, looking at the situation and thinking, this dude's not going to have any idea what he's doing. <laughs> so I get up to the counter, and they just look at me, and I go, uh. And this girl goes, can I help you order? So she just steps up from behind me in line. It's like, can I help you order something? Uh, so she orders my drink for me. I got her drink. We leave. We're, we both take different routes. And this is like across the street from, uh, from the stadium. Um, Tianmu Stadium is the, the name of the stadium in Taipei. And uh, it ends up that we both kind of cross different directions on this intersection and then both cross to head to the plaza in front of the stadium. So she notices me, I notice her, and she comes up to me and she goes, can I take a picture with you? So I was like, yeah, sure. Because <laughs> I'm like a suit and tie. I'm not a huge dude, but I'm 6'1", so I'm like relatively big yeah. uh, compared to a lot of people who are walking around over there. So she takes a selfie with me and then she just goes, you're very handsome. Aww. And she walks away, goes and gets her tickets, goes inside, and I was like, this is the coolest I've ever felt <laughs> in my entire life. Uh, That's so, the opening scene of a movie right there. <laughs> now, the, the, the ending scene is like, you know, you're standing outside with a boombox, like, <laughs> playing in your eyes. To me, you are perfect. I love actually, son. Um, but that that tournament was definitely, uh, that was the, I did not realize that that was the start of something kind of big for me. Um, and it was, it was almost a tease because it was, I hadn't done baseball in three years, and I love it so much. I love doing games. And I got, you know, six days of games. Then I had to come home. And it was like, oh, God, when is the next time I'm going to get to do this? Yeah. You know. 
So that was tough. What can we as Americans learn from Taiwan about baseball? That offense is good. Uh, <laughs> that uh, I know they've reined this in a little bit in the CPBL um, and the KBO, the Korean League, uh, in recent years. But uh, when I was there talking to guys, there's a, a guy who now is probably in his early 30s, but uh, Zeke Spruill, who's a former uh, Diamondback and pitched in the Atlanta Yeah, that name sounds familiar. Yeah, he kind of bounced around a little bit over here for a while. Um, Zeke ended up signing over there. So he was on the U.S. team the, the year that I did the first Premier 12 in 2015. There was another pitcher on that U.S. team named Zach Segovia. And Zach Segovia was actually pitching in Taiwan at the time. Uh, Zeke ended up signing a deal with a, a Taiwanese team over there. And I remember listening to a conversation between the two of them when they were talking about baseball in Taiwan. And Zach was like, dude, if you have an ERA of like five and a half here, it's pretty good. And I was like, are you serious? And he was like, ball flies. Like, you would not. The ballparks are small. The ball flies. They sign power hit. You know, Manny Ramirez. It's the Pacific Coast League. Exactly. Basically, it is the PCL just transported on the other side of the PC. And uh, they signed, you know, Manny Ramirez played in that league when he was like 43 and was still hitting bombs. Um, so it's, that's one thing that, uh, and I know they've toned it down a little bit. Um, it's kind of interesting in Korea. They were actually very open this past year about the fact that they were like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to weight the balls down, basically. Mm-hmm. We're going to de-juice the balls. Mm-hmm. But they were very open about it, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and in Taiwan, I know they've done kind of some of that too, but it's, uh, it is a party. Those games are a party. How so? They, I mean, the fans are just – it's a different experience. Anywhere you go outside the U.S. and watch baseball, it's a different experience. It's uh, our most boring sport is electric everywhere else. Um, and in Taiwan, it just so happens to be that you could go to a game and see nine homers that night, you know, <laughs> and, uh, that's especially growing up in this city. That's something that I'm, I'm good with food and beverages. How does that differ from the United States? Yeah. Um, what I find fascinating is that, uh, and I know this is the case with, with all different ethnicities in food, but American Chinese food and traditional Chinese food are not even recognized. There, there's no similarity between them, really. And so you go over there, and it's kind of funny because I remember the hotel we stayed at in Taipei, they had a Western breakfast buffet and a, a traditional Chinese breakfast buffet. I remember walking into the traditional Chinese breakfast buffet one day and going, nah, I'm not going to do this. Like, it's a lot of fish and just a lot of things that I would not eat for breakfast. Um, but it's fascinating because it's uh, – it's just so you have a concept of what you think a place is going to be like. And then you get there and there are subtle ways in which it differs that are really cool. And also things you're like, all right, this is going to take me a minute to get used to, you know? Um, but yeah, it's uh, you know, we have um, little bento boxes delivered to the, the press box every day or we'd have, um, you know, whether it be fish or um, some rolls of some kind or veggies or whatever. And, uh, it was it was certainly a, that was a different experience from the ballpark food perspective. Yeah, to me, and, and I love to be adventurous with food, but breakfast. Um, yeah, I'm the same way. Yeah, I'm the same way. I can do a lot of adventurous food things at eight o'clock at night. Yeah, not nine in the morning. Can't do it. All right. So you said that this was this was awesome. You've got this adrenaline rush. You've done six games of baseball, and now you come back home. Yeah. So and now you deal with okay, what's going to happen next? And so, how did that experience motivate you to continue on with more baseball, especially out of the country? Yeah. Um, well, I I will you know not to not to make it all heavy or all woe is me, but I mean there was definitely a stretch of time where I lost something that I loved and 
having gotten it back made me realize I can't lose that again. You know, I can't, I can't walk through life doing something that I'm not passionate about. And, uh, so I had gotten the, the MILB.com job in 2014 and writing about baseball, something that I love. Um, but the broadcasting stuff is just, it's the only thing I've ever wanted to do in my life. And so the next year, 2016, still doing the DU lacrosse stuff. Um, and I get into the summer of 2016 writing for MILB, still doing the ABL stuff. And I just kind of thought to myself, I'm going to try to send an email to, I didn't really make any contacts with WBSC at that time. Um, and I thought, I'm just going to send an email to like their general media inbox and see if I can get involved in anything else that they have going on. So I sent an email um, in, I think, late July maybe uh, and got an email back from a guy who's one of my really close contacts there now. And uh, he said, you know, I just kind of explained who I was. And he said, yeah, can you send me some examples of your work? And I was like, yeah, I did stuff, um, you know, at Premier 12 last year and sent him a few links. And he was like, oh, yeah, I remember you. You did a really good job. Do you want to come to the Women's World Cup in South Korea in a month? And I was like, <laughs> I very much do. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I flew to uh, Busan, uh, which is a place I went back to this past year, actually, for a different tournament. Um, did, uh, did the Women's World Cup there, which was, you know, the question I get is, you mean softball? No, it's women's baseball, and it's really good baseball. Um, and had a lot of fun. I only did the opening round for that one. Um, but then when I got back, I had an email actually when I got back um, from my contact there saying, we really want you to, to do these going forward. So in um, October of that year, I did the U23 World Cup in uh, Monterey and Saltillo, Mexico. Um, and then I was just in with them. And I've done every event, pretty much every event that WBSC has hosted since then. Um, so 2017, I did uh, – the only tournament that I haven't done is U12s. I haven't done any U12s yet, but I've done uh, – 2017 was U18s, um, which was in Thunder Bay, Ontario, which was great. 2018 was loaded. We had U15s, uh, Women's World Cup, and uh, U18s. Is that right? Yeah. No, U23s. And then this past year was uh, U18s and Premier 12, um, which was the second edition of that tournament. That one just wrapped up in November – um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's taken me all over the planet and it's, it's so for what, what, what we're learning here for Amanda who works at enterprise and everyone else who's <laughs> listening to this is that you just blindly send emails to people and hope <laughs> number one, that it does not get sent back to you. And if it does, then you try another combination yeah, until it works pretty much. And then you, and then you send, you just keep, you just keep asking. It's like cracking a safe, you, but no, seriously, you just keep asking people. Yeah. You, you just keep. Hey, is this available? Hey, you looking for somebody? Yeah. Hey, I noticed this. Yeah. And you just keep asking. And I'm not real good about that. I'm not real good at... Says the guy who's broadcasted in 10 <laughs> countries. <laughs> I'm not real good at, at selling myself. Um, I, uh, my, my hero in life is Conan O'Brien, and I think I've adopted his self-deprecation probably to a detrimental level. Um, but I, I'm, not, I'm not great about being the person who you know, remembers everybody's name or sends a follow-up email or a thank you note or all that kind of stuff. But I, I do know when I'm, when I'm driven and I'm motivated and I need something, um, and need it in the context of like, I have to work that, um, you know, I, I'll go after it. And, uh, and yeah, for, for these things, I just, you know, it was, I, I couldn't, I knew that if I looked back 10 years down the road and thought, man, I really should have tried for more of those. I'd never forgive myself. Yeah. And uh, I've tried to live that way in a lot of things. Um, 
and you know, honestly, it's, it's, I, I think I'm, I have a good perspective now on just how close you can come to losing it before you have to fight to get it back. And, uh, and that's a good lesson to have learned. I could have gone for learning it in a less painful way, but, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that's really how life works. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, you send emails and you, and you make phone calls and you talk to people and, and see what you can find. It helps when you're good at your job. And then Tyler's not going to say this, but I'm going to say this. What also helps is that when you're just a fun person to be around, when you're, when you're not a jerk, when, A, don't be a jerk, but B, um, just be fun and enjoy life. And, 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 and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but how much do you make it a point of when I go to this country? You mentioned how, oh, I'm sorry, I went to Starbucks. But how much of a point do you go to this country and go, oh, well, it's not like this in America? Yeah, um, that is – I was having this conversation with a, a guy at DU the other day who has done uh, Arabian Horse Broadcasts International. Arabian Horse yeah, broadcast, Broadcasting. Which I don't know if that's – and I probably should have asked him this. I don't know if that's – I know he's done horse racing broadcast. I think Arabian Horses, I think that's more of like like show horses. It's almost like the Westminster – not the Westminster Dog Show exactly, but I think it's a yeah. lot more of that than it is just like lace these horses up. They're going around this oval. <laughs> Um, but we were talking about doing sporting events internationally and I, I feel tremendously grateful to, to my mom and my dad, uh, and, and my sister for, um, you know, the first time I traveled internationally, I was 16 and my mom very much made it a point to kind of get us to realize like things aren't going to be the same as home Mm -hmm. and that's okay Mm -hmm. because different people live differently the world over and it's fine. Mm -hmm. And so I think being able to embrace that, um, that's a, a mindset that you have to have because I've been around broadcasters who get, and this is domestically and internationally, who get very flustered when things are not exactly the way they believe they should be. And I have done now a dozen WBSC tournaments, whatever it is, every single one I've walked in on the first day and there has been a fairly significant thing with the production side that needs to be worked out before the game can even get on the air. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's, you can't go into it thinking, well, oh, it's going to be the exact same way as my setup in Myrtle Beach or in Altoona or wherever, because it's not going to be that way. The same way, it's I think you you limit your life experience if you go to a place and think, well, I'll just get McDonald's here. Mm-hmm. You know, and every once in a while, sure, you know, it's you're going to get a little sick of eating fish all the time, or you're going to want something different, or whatever it is. Uh, that's fine, but you have to you have to be able to open yourself up to being immersed in a world that's different from your own, and that's not easy for people. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I've always said the the way to get to know somebody best is to travel with them. Because people travel wise, some people just turn into maniacs, you know, and, uh, and I feel lucky that I've gotten enough chill, uh, to be able to, to walk into a situation that isn't ideal and still make it work. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you to, to pick your favorite child. So out of all of these different tournaments that you've done in other countries, what stands out as the most memorable, the most fun, the most exciting, the most whatever, and why? This this past tournament in uh, in Tokyo Premier Twelve, um, I did the the championship game with uh, John Paul Morosi and Alex Cohen as the radio voice of the Iowa Cubs, um, and doing a game in the Tokyo Dome, which the Tokyo Dome is Japan's Yankee Stadium. It's so revered; um, it is a hallowed 
baseball site. It literally houses the Japanese Baseball Hall of Fame. It's on the ground. So it's like Cooperstown and, and Yankee Stadium all together. Exactly. And it is, it's a Japanese baseball fan pilgrimage site. I mean, it's, it's like the Koshian tournaments in the Tokyo Dome. And uh, doing a game, doing the final there with 45,000 people in the stands, and the way those fans are, um, you know, when Japan is at the plate, they are singing and chanting and, and, you know, jumping up and down and doing their various, uh, you know, fan group elements that they add to these games. It's just nothing. It's like an SEC football game. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not a baseball atmosphere. And there were so many times when, uh, you know, when Alex would be doing the, the play-by-play, when I would just sit there and turn my mic off and try to pay attention to what was going on in the stands because – we don't get that atmosphere, especially yeah. at a baseball game. Yeah. You know, I did a game my senior year of college. I went to the University of Nebraska. I did a game uh, at Memorial Stadium with 90-some thousand there, and uh, it was back in one of our, like, sort of good years over the last 20, which have been few and far between. But uh, beat Missouri to win the, the Big 12 North title and uh, did that game with 90-some thousand people and thought, I'll never do a game with an atmosphere like this. Yeah. And, like, at 21, it's kind of a bummer to think. <laughs> Um, but this, this game in November in Tokyo, I mean, that's, that's the easy one. You know, that's the, that's the easy thing to pick. My absolute favorite moment from any of these tournaments was three years ago, uh, the U8 team world cup in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Um, the U S had a roster, I believe they were 20 man rosters for that tournament. 18 of those guys were drafted. And I think the next year. And I think 11 were first-rounders, wow. 12 were first-rounders, something like that. Um, so Tristan Cass is in the Boston Red Sox organization now. Nolan Gorman uh, was with the Cardinals. I mean, it was just every single dude. Matthew Lieber Torres in the, when the, in the Rays system. Um, every dude in the lineup, every dude in the rotation, every dude in the bullpen was a stud. And uh, the U.S. was playing South Africa in the opening round. And South Africa is the yearly entrant into these tournaments out of the, the Africa region. Um, because they're the, the best-funded program among the African nations that compete in baseball. They're still by far the worst-funded program of the teams that we generally see competing in the World Cups. So every year they seem to have one or two guys that you think, like, man, that guy could actually be something. Um, but it's just they play so many fewer innings, so many fewer games and all that, that it takes a lot. You know, the gift and gopes are the, um, the, the exception rather than the rule. But... Uh, South Africa, the day before, had given up, I think, 30 runs to the Netherlands in a loss and made, like, 11 errors. It was just a nightmare game. Um, and they were playing the U.S., and the U.S. was a juggernaut that year. They went unbeaten in the tournament. I think they gave up three earned runs for the entire tournament. Um, and they, South Africa threw a kid, uh, a left-hander named uh, Mohamed Alo, who was... Five, five, maybe 130 pounds, dripping wet, and that kid threw a complete game against the U.S. Ended up losing five nothing, but um, you know, a fastball that could not break glass, but a nasty little curveball and a changeup, and he knew how to mix it, and he gave these dudes fits the entire game, and that's a game that I will never forget for the rest of my life because even though the guys on the other side are probably going to be in the major league soon. Mohamed Allo was the story of that game. And I've never in my career gone down to introduce myself to a player just because of his performance in a situation like that. But I went to meet that kid after really? the game. 
And uh, he, I've never seen an athlete more in the moment or more uh, just lit up by the fact that he had had the opportunity to do that. And I came to find out that he was from uh, a township in uh, so basically one of the slums uh, near Cape Town. Um, his father had just left his family, uh, I think about a month earlier, and one of their assistant coaches was tearing up as he told me this, which I'm going to have to fight not to be also. But mom had basically said, I feel like if I pitch well enough, there's a chance my dad might see this somewhere. Wow. And that oh, just, my goodness. You know, and I, he didn't say that to me, but the fact that he had had that conversation with their coaches and, you know, you see these, these coaches from South Africa and um, Dean, uh, oh, I'm not going to remember, able to remember his last name, but their, their manager is Dean McKinnon. Their manager is this big, big dude, 300-plus pounds, just a towering human being. And to see Dean McKinnon choke up telling that story and then to meet this kid and, you know, I like I said, I'm not the world's biggest guy, but for me to be towering over him and he just threw a complete game against the United States, a lineup full of first-rounders, was I'll never forget that game. Wow, that's awesome. Man, I love that story. I love that story so much. Um, I have to quickly rewind. Um what can we learn from the female professional baseball players? That is maybe my favorite tournament to work because they all love it so much. And they're doing it because they love it. my favorite. People ask me, who are your favorite ball players of all time? And I told them two names, Larry Walker and Jade Gortares. She's the shortstop on the U.S. national team. She's played in the two women's world cups that I've seen her uh, or that I've seen that team. She is as smooth and as dynamic of a ball player as I have ever seen. And uh, they do it because they love it. And they, in so many ways, have been forced down this road of playing a sport in softball that they don't really care about like they care about baseball, but that in the United States, and almost only in the United States, is the only route available to them. Um, And it's the fact that they all you know, have jobs that they leave to go play in a, a World Cup or a World Cup qualifier. We just introduced uh, Women's World Cup qualifiers this year uh, for the first time. You know, they they leave to go put on camps now and clinics uh, as Major League Baseball started to do a much better job about uh, enhancing the, the image of, um, you know, youth baseball participation for girls. Um, it's the fact that they have so many things stacked against them and it's so easy for them to not be there and they still choose to be there. That's what I love about that tournament because they're doing it because they love it and they want to be in it. Okay. So that's a really good transition because you said something earlier and I didn't want to interrupt the flow that you were on, but I wanted to kind of interject this. And this is, I think this is a good transition. I'm reading this book about Van Halen, which is awesome by the way. And, um, and the thing that stands out to me is the number of times, number one, that they got rejected and how they put, got themselves off the floor before they finally got a contract. The other thing that stands out is that they would play every single gig they could. They played dances, and they played all of these random places, and they played all of these just biker bars where there would be eight people out there, and they brought it as if they were at the forum. Like They, brought the, they didn't care that there was eight people. They brought the same intensity and energy every night, whether there was eight people or 80,000 people where they were performing. And that's one of my biggest takeaways so far from this book. And so to get back to what you mentioned earlier about, okay, I'm going to do lacrosse and who's really paying attention. And I'm wondering, as a broadcaster, 
what your mindset is when you don't know if the equipment's working or who's listening or how much I know this sport and how you kind of power through that David Lee Roth style. Yeah. And then even quite as well as them. Um, you know, and it's, there are times when I will admit it's not easy. You know, it's uh, there, especially if you're doing a sport that you're unfamiliar with or um, you're working with a team that's really struggling or whatever it is. Um, but it's, you know, the, the cliche, uh, I think it's the Ted Williams quote where he talks about how he never wanted to take a day off because what if there's a kid who paid to see him play that day? Um, or maybe it was Joe DiMaggio, one of them. But you you kind of have to adopt that mindset of you don't know who's tuned in. You don't know who's listening. The thing that always has made me want to be as good as I can from game to game and from night to night is I know that players' families are tuned in. And that's what's always made the biggest impact on me is when I would get an email when I was in Myrtle Beach or Altoona um, or, you know, nowadays I'll get hit up on social media um, when I'm doing WBSC tournaments. Um, when I hear from somebody who – I remember my first job in the minor leagues, the first email I ever got was from the parents of an outfielder uh, that we had in Myrtle Beach named Cole Miles. And they just said, you help us feel so close to him. Like when we get to tune into you guys from night to night, we feel like we're there when we can't be there. And that, I realized that there's something sacred in that where it's, you know, I, I kind of disparage the line of work sometimes when I talk to people who have real jobs and I say, yeah, I talk about sports on the radio. <laughs> um, but there is, there is something in, in how you can be that bridge for people. Um, and, you know, there always seems to be uh, with the international tournaments, you know, whether it was Mohamed Allo from South Africa or uh, two years ago doing U15s, there was a, a kid on uh, the team from Germany um, whose name I am going to forget at the moment. But uh, his father somehow found me on Twitter and uh, tweeted at me and told me how much it meant that I was talking so positively about their son and, and blah, blah, blah. And, that's the thing that I always try to keep in mind when, you know, I, I work for a college basketball team that's struggling right now. They're 4-14, four and 14, they're on a nine-game losing streak, and it's tough. But knowing that there is somebody who is probably tuned in and wanting to know how their loved one is doing makes you want to keep going that way. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of times when it's not easy, but um, I had this, this friend, uh, I still have, uh, it was one of my best friends, a guy that I worked with my first season in the minor leagues. And, uh, you know, every time we would show up to pull tarp at 7 in the morning or have to stay late to clean up the, the stands because we had a day game the next day or whatever it was, when he could tell that I was frustrated and I was about to lose it, he would come up to me and go, it beats working at a bank. And that, like, I have been able to ingrain that in my – not anything against anybody who works in a bank, but it's it's something that, like – that's just not for me. That life isn't for me. And this stuff, even in the things that are not glamorous, it's like, yeah, but look at what I get to do still every day. You know, and so that uh, I've been able to kind of make into a, a centerpiece of, of what I try to be. Okay, so you don't know this, but I have a DeLorean outside. Sweet! And, uh, and, it, and it allows us to time travel. What's nice is that this street, we could totally get to yeah, the yeah, street. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so we're going to hop in this DeLorean, and we're going to go back in time to when you are in high school. Okay. Okay, and we're talking to a young Tyler Mon who is in high school right now. And I'm going to let you know that in the future, you will be broadcasting play-by-play for baseball. What do you think? Uh, I would be elated. 
Okay, that's enough. I'm going to also tell you <laughs> that in the future you're going to do play-by-play of gymnastics. Uh, I'd probably be a little confused. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> I would think, do they even do broadcasts of gymnastics outside of the Olympics? But they do. I do. I know that now. Okay. I'm going to tell you that you're also going to do play-by-play of lacrosse. Yeah. Uh, a little confused. Okay. Probably. Um, <laughs> uh, hockey. Hockey, I would think, is cool. Okay. I would also, and I know. Okay, so how would you rank the ones where you'd be like most excited as I list as I list off the sports, and which would be the ones where you would be like really paranoid and scared? Um, most excited, definitely baseball. I'll be first. It's kind of just always. I've always been a baseball guy. Um, football is oddly enough. Football is probably my second favorite sport. It is a sport that by far I've done the least. Um, there's I'm the done, fewest games. Exactly. It's the hardest to do games. And it's, there's no minor league set right. up for it. You can't just break in doing games for a college. Like it's not really that easy to get into doing football. Um, then hockey. What's funny. If you would have told me in high school that I was doing hockey, I would have said no way. I would never have thought that I had the mental dexterity to do hockey. I'm like, I've been a big hockey fan since we got the avalanche here when I was in fifth grade. Um, I never thought that. I remember listening to hockey games when I was a kid and being like, how is this possible that you can broadcast a sport like this? So I would have been baffled that I could do hockey. Um, then basketball, um, which I've really started to, to fall in love with the broadcasting side of basketball over the last couple of years, um, getting to do it now so regularly. The ones that I would have been most paranoid about, certainly those two, lacrosse and gymnastics. Even volleyball. Oh, swimming was the one I forgot. Okay. Yeah, swimming. So we're at 10 sports in 10 countries. 10 sports, 10 countries. Yeah. Wow. Weird. Um, So much symmetry. Lacrosse and gymnastics, I knew absolutely nothing about. Now, the gymnastics thing, I will say, it's kind of a cop-out to say I broadcasted it because we have a fantastic analyst at DU, and all my part really involves is saying, like, up next on the uneven bars is blank, and then she takes everything the rest of the way. So I I won't take any credit for that. But lacrosse, I, I... will not go back and listen to my broadcast from the first couple of years I did lacrosse because I cannot fathom how bad they were because I knew nothing about it. Um, so that would have been that would have been very high on the list. <laughs> Quick uh, tangent: <laughs> Do you know Ryan Radke, or you know other right? I do. Yeah, yeah, just pipes, who's amazingly talented at everything and has the voice that we all envy. Um, he did Winter Olympics on radio, and among the sports he did was bobsledding. Wow. And I remember asking him, how in the world do you do play-by-play of bobsledding? And he says, it's actually really easy. You just say who's in there, you say the country, you say the name, you say they're off, and then the analyst does everything until the end. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one who has had that as, a, as an adopted broadcast philosophy for something. <laughs> but, but that goes to show, though, that okay, when you break down the broadcast, okay, so there's, there's certain things that don't change. Yeah. Who is it? Where have we been? Where are we at? Where are we going? Right. Recap what's going on, who's involved, what are they trying to beat. It's still storylines. And then when it comes to the nuts and bolts, it's great if you have an analyst who's an expert. Yeah. And if not, then what do you do? The, the, God, that's a great question. That is a great question. And that's what's so difficult about the, the lacrosse thing for me. The first couple of years, I had a sporadic color analyst. The guy was, a, I think he was an All-American at DU. He, I think, still plays professionally. Um, and, and he was great about being the... The, he really was the color to the game. He was, I would describe, very basic mechanics of what was going on on the field. He would explain all of the context for it. And I needed that badly because I had no idea what I was watching. Um, but the thing that I think what you were saying resonates most with me um, is that 
all of those elements are still the same because we're not the story. Broadcasters should not be the story. The play-by-play guy should not be the story. And that Matt Vaskersen is one of my heroes uh, in the in the broadcasting world. And I remember listening to an interview he did with Deadspin back in the early days of podcasts. This was like 2009. He did a podcast interview with way back, way back. Actually, that's ten years ago. I know. How is that possible? <laughs> okay, um, but I remember listening to uh, him talk about how it's it's not about you. And that, I think, is a very difficult thing, especially for young broadcasters to learn, because you've thought for so long, like, this is going to be my thing. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sound like this. And I think there's also an element in being, you know, now it's probably infinitely worse, but being the generation that sort of grew up with the Stuart Scott's The World and the the catchy sports center, um, all of that where it became, oh, the personalities of the broadcasters can also be an element of this. Mm That doesn't translate in play-by-play. You're not supposed to be that. You're supposed to be the facilitator of what's going on. And that is uh, a lesson that I feel like I've done a, a pretty decent job of, of being able to incorporate in what I do. But it's it's all because all of those things, those basic elements are there for everything. If it's gymnastics, if it's swimming, if it's football, it's all who is there, what is the situation, um, you know, those pertinent details, that's what you're there for. You're not there to be, you know, slinging out your latest catchphrase and, and trying to be the focus of that moment. What is a sport that you have not broadcast that you would really want to broadcast? Um, man, that is a good question. I would really love, this is a cop-out answer, but I would really love to do football, to actually do football. Um, yeah, that is a cop. It doesn't. It doesn't count. <laughs> That's boring. Uh, so let me just throw out different sports instead. That'll be more interesting. Weightlifting. Uh, I mean, I'd do it. I would do it. But I, this would be the honest. When you said that, what popped into my head is you remember that video from when we were kids. I think it was in the Olympics of like a you know like a Ukrainian or a Romanian dude trying to do the deadlift and like his whole body snaps in half because he's trying to. Hold Isn't that like from Saturday Night Live? <laughs> Maybe, maybe it was. That sounds like an SNL sketch. It was an adaptation for real life. That's my thing. I think, like, what if I was there? And I was like, all right, and now here goes Igor, whatever, for this 900-pound deadlift. And then the guy, like, drops it on his mouth. Like, what? What do I do? I don't know how to handle that. You do it. You can be a news reporter. (laughs) So much screaming. (laughs) So much screaming. Everyone's turning away from him. Uh, you got into your tennis voice, so do you think that you could do some tennis? I, I think I could do some tennis. I I know I'm familiar enough. You know, like I took tennis lessons for like a summer when I was a kid, so I'm familiar enough with like the operation of a tennis match. So I think maybe I could do it. I think if I had to pick out a sport, um, I think uh, Australian rules football mm-hmm. or rugby from being down there. Um, I don't know nearly enough, especially about footy. I don't know anything. So I would be comically inept. But I think it would be entertaining. Yeah. And so part of that is, is, is one of the – what I was hoping would be one of the themes is getting out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And how you, how you get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. And that is – man, that's a great question. Um, it wasn't even a question. It was just a statement. <laughs> and then I threw my hand at you like, your turn to talk again. <laughs> now it's you. Um, it's really just, you just have to do it, you know, and there is, there are a lot of people out there who 
don't want to take the risk because what if it doesn't go well? Well, it's not going to go well. A lot of times it's not going to go well. You know, I've done, and this is my, my Conan O'Brien. I was watching an old uh, Conan remote today where he was doing a, a tour of the old late night offices at, uh, in New York. And he walked, you know, this is the late 90s. Uh, early 2000s, I guess, and he walked up, and on a shelf, there were 11 uh, VHS tapes, and he said, um, this is where we keep uh, all of the episodes in which I was funny, so there's, like, maybe a dozen of those. <laughs> like, that's how I feel about my broadcast. I rarely leave a broadcast and think, oh, man, I crushed that one. I, like, that never, and so that's going to happen. You are going to have days where it doesn't go well, um, but you have to learn that that's okay because that's how you grow. And it's, that's not easy for a lot of people to do. And I, I respect that and I understand that, but getting comfortable being uncomfortable is, um, it's the only way you can grow in a field like this because you can't, you can settle into a life, um, where you're just doing something that, uh, you know, is, is good enough. Um, but the people that I know and the people that I get along with best in this business aren't that way because they're, they're trying to get to, the next step they're driving themselves they want to find whatever comes down their road next um and that you have to step out of your comfort zone for that because otherwise it's you know there's no point to any of it i'm going to bring up a friend of mine by the name of jim watson uh do you know who jim watson is i don't think so okay so that's going to make the story even better good um so and one of the things that i think jim watson would say jim watson has done play-by-play i think he's up to 23 different sports that he's done play-by-play no there were 23 sports yeah (laughs) And he has carved out a career doing the sports that no one else wants to do or, um, or is scared to do. And I think one of the things that he would say, I hope to have him as a guest at some point in the future, is, um, is take your ego out of it, yeah. right? Because we all want to do the most popular sports, right? right. We all want to do baseball, basketball, and football. Right. All the time, whenever I hear you know, some kid in college, oh, I want to be a baseball play-by-play announcer. And I tell them, learn how to become a play-by-play announcer right. so that you can do more sports. And Jim has told me many times about the beauty of showing up in shorts and flip-flops in a studio in Burbank and sitting down in front of a big old huge TV about a sporting event that's happening on the other side of the world and doing a broadcast from the studio in Burbank and then going home and being with his wife and kids and getting paid well to do so. Yeah. There's the beauty stuff in that. and, And he's gotten to the point where NBC Universal knows that they can give him any sport at any time and he's going to do the job because he'll figure out a way to do it. Yeah. And he's taken his ego out of, I have to do football because it's the most popular, or I have to do baseball because it's the sport I love the most as a yeah. kid, or whatever it might be for him. And he's learned how to do that. And I, I'm blown away by, by his talent to do those things. And it is difficult for uh, an ego-driven business, and to an extent an ego-driven career choice, to be so well served by putting your ego aside. You know what I mean? Like you have to have a certain level of confidence in yourself to think, oh, people will want to hear me on the radio or on television talk about this thing. But the only way that you're going to climb in this type of industry is to recognize that it's not about you and that your ego is not going to serve you well if that's the thing that you're most focused on. Um, you know, I mean, the that is the lacrosse thing for me. When they asked me to do lacrosse, I did not in any way think that that was something that I that was going to be a good step in my career. I thought it was the only available next step, and it has turned out that it's been one of the most valuable things that I've ever done because of all the the doors that it either reopened for me or that it opened for me. 
That's interesting. And you know, it's all because I thought, well, I don't have, I don't have the ability right now at this stage of my career to say no to this. And, and that's what, and that's another one of the things that that I, though I was glad that we could that we could talk because for you it's not just the number of sports, but also okay. So you write and you podcast and you've done talk show and you've worked behind the scenes on radio and you've done play by play and I'm sure and there are many more things that I'm sure that you've done that and that we don't have time for or that I'm forgetting. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can speak to how writing helps you broadcast and how broadcasting helps you podcast and how podcasting helps you do radio and how radio makes you understand the people who are working behind the scenes as well as in front of the scenes and how that all comes full circle. Yeah, that is, that's, if I had, um, the ability to, to pinpoint one thing in my career that I think has made me successful, it's that it's the fact that I've been able to do a lot of different stuff. Um, you know, you bring up the point of having worked behind the scenes. So understanding what that's like the other day, there was a scheduling mix up at the, the station that carries our basketball broadcast. And I got on the air five minutes late and the guy who got me on the air is not a guy who usually does our basketball broadcast and all that. And I could tell that he and the other guy who ended up running the game for the rest of the night were freaking out, thinking that I was going to be furious. And I was like, hey, man, I've been there. I don't. It's fine. Yeah. Like, it's nobody's going to die from this. We're talking about a college basketball game on the radio. It's going to be okay. But <clears throat> I do know that a lot of people wouldn't handle that that way. Um, it's the same way if you've worked in a restaurant, you're probably not going to be a miserable monster to a server, mm-hmm. you know. Um, because you know what that job entails. Um, I think that the most interesting element to me has been the interplay between the broadcasting and the writing side. Um, Because I'm obviously, you know, I've been a writer now for for minor league baseball for, this will be my seventh season coming up, which is the longest I've held any job. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate (laughs) it. Um, But I'm definitely, if you ask my editors, uh, I'm definitely a broadcaster first. And I know one of my editors she still will say, oh, you went very radio on this. Okay. Um, and, and I think so, that's a really good compliment, by the way. Thank you. I think so, too, Josh. <laughs> um, but they, uh, you know, especially in my first season, they would point out things to me that uh, you don't write. It sounds great if you say it on air. Um, and, of course, now I wish I could think of an example of it. Um, but it's, it's something that sounds good when you're being conversational, but when you're writing, you don't really need it. Um, and that has been really interesting because it's helped me think about ways that I can streamline the way I say stuff in broadcasts, as well as when I'm writing, how can I still make something the full context of what I want it to feel like without it being too wordy or too flowery or too unwieldy. Um, and so that I'm fascinated by words. Like I've always been, I wish I was one of those people who could just like pick up languages really easily or something like that. But, um, you know, I was, I still have vivid memories sometimes of the first time that I heard a word, like uh, a, a word that the word that came to mind the other day was altercation. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing my dad use the word altercation when I was in like maybe fourth grade and asking him, what does that mean? And, like, I've always been fascinated by that kind of stuff. And so the, the linguistic element of it and how the broadcasting style is so different from the writing style, that's been really, really neat. And I think it has helped me become a better broadcaster learning on the writing side. I don't know how much better of a writer I've ever gotten to be. <laughs> but uh, at least it's helped one side. Um, and, uh, but it's, you know, doing so many different things. The podcast, honestly, you know, I uh, had somebody in the – uh, in a professional sports organization say to me in so many words in the last few months, like, 
who are you trying to be? Are you trying to be like a legitimate broadcaster and writer? Or are you trying to be a guy with like a goofy podcast? And basically like it's, it's, I mean, it is 2020 now and you and I live in a world and work in an industry in which any vulture capitalist tech bro can buy a sports journalism website and destroy it in a matter of minutes. So my answer to that was like, I'm trying to be whatever keeps me relevant and helps me pay my mortgage and my bills. It's an awesome answer, by the way. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think that we live in an era where our industry is undergoing so much change and is so tumultuous in a way that other industries are not. And so I don't think that a person who works in a different area of, I guess, kind of the same world, uh, at least being involved in sports, you don't get that. It's not like that if you work in a, in a front office or if you work on a training staff or you work, you know, whatever. Because um, this is not a, it's not a super easy time. And, um, you know, the podcast stuff, I started the, the Purple Dinosaur podcast to talk Colorado Rockies baseball because we live in a very underserved baseball media market. Um, if you're driving around at night and you flip on the main sports station in town, all of their liners talk about the Broncos, who have not won more than seven games in the last four years. Um, and it's uh, a market in which the other teams are largely ignored because for so long the major media players in town have only talked Broncos, so then their their demographic is only Broncos fans. And then it's this self-perpetuating cycle of, well, we only talk Broncos because this is what these people want to hear, and they're only tuned in because you only talk Broncos. Um, so we started the podcast in 2014, uh, because there's a lot of intelligent baseball fans here. There's a lot of intelligent Rockies fans. There's a lot of people who want to hear from the radio voice, the Albuquerque Isotopes, or the Lancaster Jedhawks, or the Asheville Tourists, or the Hartford Yard Ghosts, or whoever it is. Uh, apologies to Grand Junction and Boise. Um, no, I think we've had them on, maybe. Um, but that was not being served. And uh, we created the show to see what is there, what is the market for something like this. And it blew up, I mean, beyond my wildest expectations. And uh, it, it's been neat to be involved in something that has kind of taken on a, a life and created a community of its own. Um, but, yeah, like I've also evolved a lot in my own career. And there are times when I think, like, how much longer am I going to do this podcast about the Rockies where we're making, like, fart jokes and, you know, <laughs> like we're, we're talking about Brian Bohannon. Like, it's <laughs> how long is this going to go on? Um, but it's a, it's an experience that like, I wouldn't be in this place in my career now if it wasn't for something like that. And that's one of the neat things, I guess, about being in this era in media is that you do have the opportunity to do something like that. And if it does strike the right nerve with people, it can turn into something special. So speaking of the Rockies, where were you in April of 1993? Uh, I was here, uh, for the, uh, the Rockies first home game. I was in the second row of the third deck at mile high stadium. Um, and, uh, watched Eric Young's home run and, uh, you know, I, I was hooked on that team from day one. I still remember when they unveiled fun fact, the Rockies current logo, the prime, well, it's not the primary logo anymore. The primary logo now is the CR, which I think is super lame, but the logo that has the Colorado Rockies with the ball flying over the mountains. That's not the original logo. They unveiled a logo prior to that, which everybody thought was so lame that they basically had to go back to the drawing board and redesign. It was a much smaller baseball that was like in the middle of the mountain. And, uh, but I remember when they announced that, I remember seeing it on TV and being just fascinated. 
and I was in on that team instantly. So yeah, I was in uh, in second grade, and uh, and yeah, I never I did not miss a Rockies home opener until my junior year of college, I think. Wow. Yeah. How many minor league baseball games did you attend at Mile High Stadium of the Zephyrs or the Bears? Um, the the Zephyrs are the ones I remember. Um, we probably went to you know half a dozen every year. I would mm-hmm. say uh, we'd always go to the Fourth of July game, which was you know. It's, I wrote a, a story one time for MILB.com about a, a Zephyrs player named Joey Meyer who hit what was... Love that story. I sent that story to my dad. It was a, it was, that was a crazy thing to write. And I tracked Joey Meyer down. He works as a security guard at a hospital in Hawaii. And I somehow got his phone number through a, an old writer at the Denver Post and talked with Joey Meyer. And, and that was cool. And How far uh, was the home run? I interrupted you. 582 feet. 582. 582 is the estimated distance. They brought out a uh, Mile High Stadium was owned by the city. They brought out a city surveyor to measure the distance between home plate and where it hit in the third deck of Mile High Stadium. But one of the things I wrote about in that story was the fact that that was a triple-A team playing in an 85,000-seat stadium. And on most nights, they would get a triple-A crowd in the late 80s, which is like a couple thousand people. Like, that wasn't the renaissance era of minor league baseball. And they had, I cannot imagine the, the dispensations that they had to get, the permits they had to get from minor league baseball to play in a stadium in which, you know, for so long when the, the Omaha Royals played at Rosenblatt, they would tarp off the seats in the outfield to reduce it down to a capacity where they were selling enough tickets to make it viable for them. You can't do that in an 85,000-seat <laughs> NFL stadium. And uh, that always fascinated me. I mean, walking into the same place that is just – mecca for denver sports fans from august through january you know in in june there's 1500 people there and like you're just walking around this giant empty stadium i wish i had more memories of it but i do like i remember the fireworks nights i remember being there with 85,000 people at a triple a baseball game and uh it was weird so one of the things that also made the joey meyer home run so awesome is that game happened to be on television yeah how many minor league baseball games in the 80s were on television right. where you could see where it landed? Right. And uh, it's it's amazing because – so I wrote that story in, I think, the offseason of 2014 to 2015. Um, the next year, or maybe it was the year after, the Denver Post did a fantastic series with one of my, my good pals, Benjamin Hockman. Oh, yeah, that series was really good. Nine innings. Yeah. Um, which is – Ben's moved on to the, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch in his hometown. But Nick Groke, who's uh, now with the Athletic in Denver, Nick and Ben – did this series where they just followed different baseball things around the Denver area, so whether it was high school or uh, an old man league or, you know, um, 1800s baseball reenactors, that kind of stuff. And one of the stories they did, Ben did, was on Joey Meyer. And he found the footage through, uh, I think it's CBS4, the, the station in town, where they still had it from that night. Like, he went into the archives with the guy and found the tape and got it digitized and sent to the post. They had it in their story. And, yeah, that's pretty incredible that back in 1989, whenever it was, they were televising Denver Zephyrs games around here. Um, but, yeah, it was uh, – that, that is still one of those moments where it's like, if I could go – if I if, – when we get in the DeLorean – we can set it for that, and we can go watch the Joey Meyer home run because it's certainly something that I wish I would have uh, been a part of. Okay, so one of the other things that we need to do in the DeLorean is because um, – so fun fact, um, Josh lived in Littleton, Colorado um, from 78 through 81. Uh, my kindergarten, first grade, and second grade years lived in Littleton, and my dad would take me to Denver Bears games. Yeah. And my first year playing t-ball, where it's just, just t-ball, um, 
they, uh, they said, hey, we need a name. We need a name for the team. And I said, we should be the Bears because the baseball team here is the Bears. <laughs> awesome. So my little league team was called the Bears. And I remember going to the 4th of July games. Yeah. And I remember, yeah, it would be packed. We'd probably only go to two or three games, maybe four or five. I remember the players would come out and sit in chairs and watch the fireworks yeah. too. And I remember yeah. that was really cool. And for the longest time, my dad and I have always talked about something. And I'm wondering if it really happened or whether – we just mentioned it at some time, and it just got into our brain that it was fact. And so that's why we need to take the DeLorean back okay. in time. Because I'm already of, into this. Because according to my dad and I, for a 4th of July game, Tim Raines hit a walk-off inside the park home run. Wow. And I have done a lot of different Google searches to try to find an article that would confirm this. Oh, so this man. would have been, his rookie year was what, 81 or 80? So this would have been 79 or so. Okay. And he had a legendary season with the Denver Bears that year. And especially when it's Mile High Stadium and how big it is right. with his speed, it would not be difficult for him to hit uh, an inside-the-park home run. Now, whether or not he hit... A home run or an inside-the-park home run or whether it was in the seventh inning or whether it was a game winner or when it was. But according to my dad and I, we watched Tim Raines hit a walk-off inside-the-park home run on the 4th of July fireworks night. And, and it was the greatest thing we ever saw in our lives, it if we saw it. It had to be 1980 because according to Baseball Reference, I was his only here in Denver. Okay. He slashed 354-439-501 that year for a 940 OPS uh, As a second baseman, and sixty-four runs batted in, he stole seventy-seven bases in one hundred and eight games. Um, the, one of my uh, extremely nerdy things that I love to do is uh, I go to the Denver Public Library and look through the old microfilms sometimes okay. of uh, the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post. So uh, I will say that it is probably very likely now that I'm going to go down there and look at the July fifth, nineteen eighty. Rocky yeah. News and see if they have an article about it. Or, or maybe it was July 2nd or, or July 3rd. Yeah, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, it's, okay. it's quite possible that that... Yeah, true, because yeah, they, be... they do multiple fireworks nights. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, the other thing I remember <laughs> is, um, is just... Oh, my dad said, oh, you know, we would watch Randy Bass. And so there would always be, like, these little stories, just, like, one or two paragraphs in, in the news or the post. that would be like, Randy Bass had another home run in Japan. And so I was always fascinated by Randy Bass in Japan because we saw him in Denver, and there would always be these small little, you know, just, like, one, two-paragraph articles <laughs> in, in the local papers. It's so amazing to me. Like, I remember um, when I was a kid first learning that players could just be sold to the Japanese League. That, like, baffled me. I had no idea. I'm still and baffled I, exactly, by this. I'm still to this day. DJ really Johnson just works. got sold to Japan. I'm I, like, why? Right. I like DJ. And I don't get the I don't get the interplay between the organizations. Like, they're, how, who calls from, like, the Hiroshima Carp to the Rockies, and they're like, well, what can we give you for DJ Johnson? Like, how does that work? I don't get any of that. Yeah. I... I very like, weird. there's all these rules to, to make sure that you keep players and hang on to them and you, and you don't lose them, and then you just, all right, go ahead and go to Japan. <laughs> Have fun. <laughs> You'll have a good opportunity yeah. over there. It's going to be great for you. Which I think DJ Johnson is going to be a star over there. He's a beard. Yeah. And, yeah, it's, I think it's a good move for him. Yeah, I'm really excited. Even though I miss him already because he's a good pitcher and a better human, and him and his wife are awesome. Yeah. They did so much work in Albuquerque in the community. and uh, Good interview and just just great story of just – not once again, not giving up. Yeah, and how yeah. many opportunities he had to give up and not giving up. Um, and that is one thing about baseball. I think that compared with other sports, we come across so many guys who are like that. Where it's just like, how many times have you been told that you're not going to make it? It's not going to happen for you, and then you do. And I think that 
at least in a small part, I know that's helped me keep going a lot of the time. When you look at dudes who just have no business being where they are, and then there they are, you know. Um, and I like that baseball has that in a way that few other sports do. I was listening to an interview with Charles Barkley the other day where he was talking about how, you know, the NBA, there's 400, however many players are on the NBA. He was like, we only turn over 40 of those guys every year. Mm-hmm. So even if you were one of the best players in college basketball, there's a very good chance you never sniff a professional contract in the United States. And baseball is not that way because it's the rosters are so much bigger. They play so many more games or more teams. Um, and so you see that so often, and it's like it just helps you keep believing in things, I think. What was the first baseball hat that you ever owned? Um, I mean, I know uh, Zephyr's hat. Um, it's kind of funny. I actually have in my office, I have a, a Zephyr's hat with my mom's old company logo embroidered onto the side. Like they must've done a group rate where they were like, yeah, we'll give you some hats. Also. Sure. It wasn't a giveaway item for the first 1500 fans. Maybe we just like <laughs> my mom's company sponsored. So I'm like, that's possible. Um, but I, the first hat that I remember thinking like, oh man, this is my hat. And I have it in, in that room too. It was a size, I think six and seven eighths Rockies hat from their inaugural season. Um, that now, like, I look at it and it's like, I was that small once, you know, <laughs> like you look at something you wore when you were a kid, you're like, wow, that's amazing. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's obviously grown since then, the, the rest of the house. How many, how many are we up to? <laughs> I got this, this question from our basketball coach the other day. I think, I think fitted hats. Um, so I'm obviously as a hat nerd, I break it down <laughs> into, into things. Uh, the, the ultimate hat to me is the new era 5950, which is the official on-field hat of major and minor league baseball, et cetera. Um, I also, now that I've done so much international traveling and visited so many ballparks, like for example, the, um, you know, Fortitudo Bologna in Italy, where I did, uh, the Europe and Africa qualifier this summer, they don't use new era. They don't have majestic uniforms or anything like that, but they still have a fitted game hat. So now I include that in my fitted hat to collect those types of things. Um, so I think I'm around like 140 to 150. 140 <laughs> to 150. It's uh, it's really dumb. Josh. How many how many Rockies hats do you have? <laughs> it's really dumb. Uh, just Rockies hats, probably. Uh, probably between 10 and 12, I would say. Because the Rockies, so the Rockies for a long time only had the black hat, <clears throat> black hat, purple squatchy. That's the button on top. The CR on the front. Then they introduced the black hat with the purple brim, the purple bill. That was, uh, they just kind of used it wherever for a while, then it became the road hat. Now it's the road hat. For a while, and I very much wish they would bring this back, they had an all-purple hat. Uh, And there was a time in which they would wear the all-purple jerseys with the all-purple hats. And uh, then I think somebody was just like, this is way too much purple. I wish they would bring back the all-purple hat, but they haven't done it. What's interesting is they still sell it. Uh, at Coors Field, and it's still listed as, like, the tag on the inside listed as, like, official on-field merchandise, which I believe means that it would still be, if they presumably had to order them for the team, they could still wear that. Like, it's still part of their official uniform suite with MLB. Um, But they haven't worn that in, I don't know how long. And then, you know, there's a new BP hat every year, which I don't get all the time, but there's a couple of those that I've got. Yeah. I will say it's probably a good thing that the Rockies are the least creative franchise <laughs> when it comes to uniforms and logos and stuff because otherwise I would have so much more merchandise than I do. But it's like, well, you haven't changed your Times New Roman interlocking logo 
in uh, your 25 years of existence, 28 years of existence. If you lived in Albuquerque, you might have about 25 hats. That's the problem. <laughs> I somehow do not have a mariachi's hat yet. Somehow I've been able to avoid spending that money, which is dumb because I know when I go down there, like next year, I was telling you before we started recording, hopefully uh, Sam Dykstra and Josh Jackson from MILB.com and I will be making another New Mexico trip like we did a few years ago. But I know I'm going to get... A green chili cheeseburgers hat and a mariachi's hat and whatever else I can get. When I was down there, the first time I went down there, I think I came back with four isotopes hats. <laughs> I have the the black with the red bill. I have two Duke's hats. And I think I have the all black one, too. No, I have the black with the purple. That's what I have. Well, Kara Hayes, uh, she runs our retail. She appreciates it. And so does our <laughs> owner, Ken Young. <laughs> I do still have my Walter White uh, okay. t-shirt. I've got that. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think about like, I can see Kara going back and going like, Hmm, we didn't sell as much merchandise this year versus the, Oh, that's because Tyler didn't come down to Albuquerque this year. year. And that's why we started the mariachis because sales dropped and we needed to start the mariachis in order to get retail sales back up. It was my fault. Sorry. Sorry, everyone. Sorry, John Trump. Didn't mean to. What's something else about the history of baseball in Denver that most people don't know that we should know? The very first uh, major integrated baseball competition was in Denver. The, uh, before, uh, over a decade before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier, uh, the Denver Post used to host a tournament every year, uh, the Denver Post Tournament, um, in which some of the top teams in baseball, not major league teams, but some of the top. It's so weird when you look back at that era of baseball because the Pacific Coast League, for example, was basically a major league. Um, it just was not aligned with major league baseball, but it wasn't a formal affiliation the way it is now. Um, so there would be teams that would come through, um, you know, that were either top barnstorming teams or top minor league teams or whatever. Well, uh, I believe the first time that uh, the tournament was integrated. I want to say it was 1934, and I think it was the Kansas City Monarchs. So it was like Satchel Paige and, um, you know, I think Cool Papa Bell might have been on that team, Oscar Charlton, like those names. It was that level of play. Those, those players came through. Um, and I want to say, and I might be conflating a couple years of the tournament, but um, the House of David team was also in, in, uh, in that year, which was a barnstorming group of Orthodox Jewish ballplayers. Who traveled the country and played baseball and had incredible beards and crazy uniforms and um, but yeah the uh, the post tournament I want to say in '34 uh, was integrated for the first time and that was you know well over a decade before Jackie Robinson broke in with the Dodgers and I don't think anybody knows that and, and based on your trips to I did not know that your, your trips to the Denver Library what was written about the historical significance of these tournaments you know what's cool is. It's very, at least the stuff that I have read, and, you know, back then I think Denver had four newspapers, something like that, but I know the stuff that I have read was pretty progressive about it was, oh, it's the first time that, you know, back then a colored team or a Negro team and uh, and white teams take the field at the same time, and it seemed very, um, very much as though the journalists knew what they were seeing was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And not just, oh, this is a novelty, they invited this Negro Leagues team here. Um, and that's that's really cool. Denver has, you know, some ugly chapters in its history, and Denver right now is a, a, a very, uh, I think is a city that's grappling with its lack of diversity in a lot of ways. Um, but there's a lot of really progressive moments and a lot of really big step-forward civil rights kind of moments in Denver history too. And it's neat because I know for a while I was kind of worried about 
reading those things and thinking like, oh, what if there's like some 1930s hot take columnist who, uh, you know, was not keen on this whole thing. Um, but yeah, the stuff that I remember reading was all like, oh wow, this is this is actually really cool to see this. Did they play it at the venue that became known as Mile High Stadium? No, this is uh, a short time. Mile High was originally built as Bears Stadium and I think opened in 47. This was played at a place really not too far from here, from where we're sitting right now. My, my neighborhood is called Athmar Park. Um, on the other side of Broadway from here and maybe not even five blocks north, uh, is an area that is one of my favorite Denver fun facts. Uh, it was called Merchants Park. The businesses that are there now are still called the Merchants Park Shopping Center, which I love. Um, but yeah, Merchants Park hosted uh, the Bears um, minor league team, and then the the post tournament every year. And uh, and yeah, it was that tournament was a it was a big deal for a long time. And then you know as baseball kind of move forward and the minor leagues are more integrated with the big leagues and all of that. It just sort of petered out and died, I think in the forties. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, that was sort of the ancestral homeland of Denver baseball, especially considering your, uh, you call yourself an amateur Denver sports. Uh, yeah. uh, I'm going to call you a semi-pro. Okay. Yeah. But okay. by the end of this podcast, you might be a pro, but you're a minimum <laughs> semi-pro. Yeah. You, you're at least a double A. You might be a triple A historian. Um, when was it that people started to realize that 5,200 feet elevation does different things to a baseball and we have to write about it and understand this? Um, I know that there were definitely conversations about that, you know, back probably, probably honestly as far back as the first rumored moves of major league teams to Denver. Denver was kind of used for a long time as – the way Los Angeles was used as the bargaining chip in the NFL prior to the, the Rams and the Chargers going there, Denver was sort of used as that in baseball in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. There were rumors for a long time that the White Sox were going to move here, then the A's were going to move here. I remember those. Yeah. I was in the Bay at the time. Um, yeah. And it was Denver was always the dangled chip. And um, I think that hurt a lot of Denver sports fans for a long time because Denver felt like a major league city that didn't have a major league team and then was just a pawn for other places to get new ballparks. Mm-hmm. and um, Still hasn't worked in Oakland. Right, exactly, which is kind of strange. I <laughs> uh, got the job done in Chicago. Um, but uh, actually, the Chicago rumors were from way earlier, which is so fascinating. The rumors when they got the new Comiskey was that they were actually going to move to St. Petersburg in Florida. Um, but the, I mean, I know, you know, the Joey Meyer story from the, the mid to late 80s, that was, uh, even in all the stuff that I read at the library about that home run, it was, well, the ball travels farther here, all of that. And so I think as long as Denver teams have been leaving to play road trips and then coming back, people have talked about it. But what's so fascinating is I've always wondered whether this is a dumb thought process to have or not. But other franchises have been successful in their levels – playing in Denver, pre-Humidor, you know, before all of the conversation about how the ballpark plays and whether the ball is used and whatever. You know, the Zephyrs won the American Association when I was in first grade. The Bears won, you know, six or seven Western League titles back in their early incarnations. They played, you know, the Tim Raines, Andre Dawson era. They played, uh, you know, winning championships in the American Association in the 80s, um, which – for all the people that I hear say it's impossible to win a World Series in Colorado, I don't buy that because it's been done before. And, yeah, it hasn't been done at the major league level, but it's been done at a level when you're competing against 
contemporaries. You're competing against the same level. Um, and I'm not sure if that's a, a naive way to think of it, but um, it's reality. And until they move the team and rip that ballpark down to 20th and Blake, you got to figure out a way to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's the most unique. It is arguably the most unique thing in sports, the fact that they have to deal with that when nobody else does. I admit that my opinion and, uh, and just viewpoints of how baseball is played in elevation has changed since working in Albuquerque. I'm not proud of this, but I know that when I was a, a writer for the Oakland Tribune and uh, I covered the Giants, and they'd go to Denver and play games. And I remember one of the things that I would do is I was look at the I would look at the home and road splits, yeah. and I would always find someone who I could label the this year's poster child for the right. course field effect. Right. And I'm not proud of that because I know now the different factors that are involved in going in and out of elevation, and yeah. how the ball breaks more than what your eyes are used to seeing it break when you leave elevation. Yeah. And now that I live in a, in a city and, and describe baseball games and, and a city that basically has the exact same elevation, I know what a toll it takes on you just going in and out of it constantly that you never really get settled in elevation. Yeah. And as soon as you might, you're gone. And especially when you're gone and as the season goes along, how much harder that becomes. Yeah. It's not that big a deal in April or in May. But then once you hit July or you hit August and you go to California for a week or you go to Texas for a week and you come back – and you're exhausted. Right. It's crazy. And, and my, my just overall just appreciation and just perspective on, on baseball in altitude is so different now. And it's fascinating because I think for so long, the only dimension to that discussion was, well, the ball flies farther at elevation. And now all the stuff that you just talked about, that's the real issue. It's not that the ball flies farther. That's obviously going to be an issue. But it's the fact that, you know, Purple Row had a a column about this probably six years ago that really I think was the first time that people on a large scale realized the the main issue, which is when you are a baseball player, even aside from the travel and what it does to your body and how it it breaks you down uh, because there's less oxygen here and you don't recover as well, when you have to go from – the way pitches break at altitude and leave and adjust to how they break somewhere else and then come back and readjust to how they break at altitude, and you do that for 162 games a year, that is an impossible task. And uh, it's it's interesting because, you know, this era of Rockies pitchers now with, you know, Kyle Freeland, who hopefully has a, a bounce back year this year because he's such a great story for that team. But being a Denver kid, he has been – such a revelation, I think, in a lot of ways to people in that organization because he brings this concept of, no, this is how I've always had to compensate, mm-hmm. where I'm going to let this breaking pitch go at one spot when I'm on the road. It's at a different spot when I'm at Coors Field because I need to adjust for how it's going to break. Um, and there's just so much more intricacy to it. And, yeah, it's tough because, you know, obviously as being the the pro wrestling heel of, of Rocky's Twitter, my podcast account, um, you know, we drag any national media writer who just jumps on that hashtag Coors bandwagon. But that's the easiest thing to know about this franchise. And to be honest, the Rockies haven't ever made themselves relevant enough for a long enough span of time that people nationally have had to learn more about them, and that's on them. Um, but it's it's just so much more of a, an intricate and um, widely dimensioned issue for them. Uh, that it's it's fascinating to hear how the conversation is now, but it's also like, 
Oh man, it's that's a really tough thing to overcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, and I'm wondering how the Larry Walker Hall of Fame candidacy is going to shape the future narrative of hashtag course. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially because of the fact that people have really started to beat the drum for how great of a player he was away from Coors Field. Um, you know, his, his 97 MVP season is the, is the most emblematic example of that where he hit, I think, six more home runs away from, from Coors Field. His OPS was higher on the road. Um, he was such a transcendent ball player. And the thing that I love most about Larry Walker, there are only a few guys that I've ever had this happen involuntarily with in my life. But when Larry Walker would hit a ball to the gap in Coors Field, I would watch him run the bases. I don't do that with players. I watch where the ball goes like any other fan. I'm not smart enough to watch the dimensions of everything else that's going on. With Larry Walker, I always watch him run the bases because it was like, he was guided by magnets. He never had to look at where he was on the field. He never had to look down to find a bag. The way he cut bags, the way he rounded first, he was the most fluid, instinctual ball player I've ever seen in my life. And he was the exact, the exact same way in the outfield. And that's what bothers me about people who reduce him to hashtag Coors. Is it's one thing if Larry Walker was just uh, a juggernaut offensive player. But he ran the bases. He was a brilliant defender. He had the best outfield arm I've ever seen. He did everything. He was the five-tool guy. And, you know, Todd Helton was a great player, was a great defender, um, and he's going to get dinged for, for Coors Field, although it has shocked me the way he has made a jump in Hall of Fame votes so far this year. Um, but I think Larry Walker is, uh, is an exponentially better player than Todd Helton, just given the fact that Walker played a more demanding position did more on the base paths and was a was a more five tool kind of guy. Um, you know, I my hope he deserves it. He deserves to be their first Hall of Famer. The fact that he has not had his number retired at Coors Field is an absolute travesty, and I don't know how that is still a reality. Um, I hope that enough people finally get this that the whole Coors Field thing is is way too complex to just lay at the feet of, well, a guy played at elevation. He should never get credit for anything. Cause if that's the case, then why doesn't, you know, 2018 Kyle Freeland or 2018 Herman Marquez get more Cy Young consideration. We penalize hitters for it. We don't reward pitchers for it. Um, and so I like that at least there's been a lot more of a, a conversation about it now. Um, and the, the Larry Walker thing, if he gets in, I've never been to Cooperstown for all of fame weekend. I'm going next year. If he gets in, if he does get in, can we get the former PA announcer to go Larry Walker, <laughs> Alan Roach. He, if he is not booked doing, uh, the Super Bowl or the Olympics or whatever else at that point, uh, that dude talk about pipes, man. Holy cow. He, uh, yeah, yeah. He, that is the, that is the PA person's dream is to be Alan Roach. PA slash voiceover actor dream. Okay, so if uh, Larry goes to Cooperstown, then you're there. What other countries? Let's uh, let's uh, circle back. What other countries would you would be next on your list if you were in charge of future baseball tournaments where you could go and broadcast? Cuba, number one, hands down. Uh, I it's it's kind of a bummer to me. I've wanted to go to Cuba my entire life because I've always been fascinated by Cuban baseball, um, especially. Because back in the day, when Cuba would just roll everybody in international tournaments, we didn't know who any of those guys were. 
because they never left the island. They didn't talk to the media. There was no information about them. There was no internet to search anything about them. There weren't live streams of Syrian national games. They were ghosts. They were this team. It was like the Soviet hockey team. You know, they would they would just show up, beat the hell out of everyone, take their golds, and go back home to this place nobody could visit. And so I've always been fascinated by Cuba in that regard. And it's kind of a bummer now because I know so many people who have been to Cuba, and I'm like, that was always my thing. I was supposed to do that. But everybody goes, and they take their pictures, you know, with cigars and rum and cool old cars. And I'm like, no, nah, I just want to sit and watch games there for weeks at a time. That's all I want to do. Um, so Cuba would be number one. I really would love to do uh, more stuff in, in South America. The tournament that we did in Colombia was awesome. Uh, Panama was great in, uh, in Central America. I would love to do Venezuela. I really wish that was a more stable situation because I've talked with, with um, WBSC people and players and coaches who have done tournaments in Venezuela. and uh, I've talked about how amazing that atmosphere is and, um, and all of that. I feel really lucky that I've done stuff in uh, Korea and Japan. I would really love to do tournament stuff uh, on a bigger stage in Korea. The tournaments that I've done there have been at a, a complex that's basically the equivalent of a small spring training complex. So the, the ballparks are small. Um, I think doing something in, uh, you know, in the Go Check Sky Dome or, um, you know, in the Doosan Bear Stadium or wherever else in Korea would be pretty amazing. But to have done stuff in Japan, Korea, and Taiwan is is unbelievable. Um, the the Latin American countries, I think, are what I would really love to explore next. This year we have a lot coming up in Mexico. Um, Mexico has made a huge emphasis uh, on their national teams, their national program. They're going to the Olympics for the first time. They beat the U.S. in the bronze game at Premier 12, so they're going to the Olympics. Um, they basically have a ministry of baseball now. Uh, that's a governmental level position. Uh, Edgar Gonzalez, Adrian Gonzalez's brother, is former is isotope. That guy, former isotope. Uh, he is that guy. That's awesome. It's it's a very cool gig. He pretty much travels the country. Um, you know, the construction of academies or new ballparks or youth facilities or whatever. He kind of oversees a lot of that stuff. Um, how they integrate. Things like, uh, you know, the play ball campaign for Major League Baseball, their relationship with WBSC. Um, Mexico is fascinating because there is a summer league and a winter league, and there's only one city that crosses over between them. Monterey has a team in both leagues. No other Really? City, yeah. I would have never known that. No other city has is a it, team in both is leagues. Is it mostly the southern part of Mexico that does the winter leagues and the northern part? The or Pacific is... Coast does the winter league. So it's pretty, if I remember right, it's pretty heavily slanted toward the southern part of the Pacific Coast. But they're all basically on the Pacific Coast with the exception of Monterey, which is kind of more centrally located. But everything else is just up and down that coast. Um, and then for the summer league, which is technically a triple A league, yeah. um, even though there's no affiliations, those, those teams are all over. But what's fascinating is the relationship. So four years ago, the first premier 12 that I did in Taiwan, there was this massive blow up and I still don't really know the details of this, but there's a massive blow up between, uh, Femme Bay, which is the, the federation that oversees Mexican baseball. It's their USA baseball, um, the governing body, uh, the Mexican Pacific winter league and the uh, Liga Mexicana, which is the summer league. Those three entities basically just cut off all relationship. So Femme Bay could not put a team together for Premier 12. And it was down to like a week before the tournament. And Edgar Gonzalez, he told me and J.P. Morosi this story in, um, in Guadalajara in November. He said, we were still a couple of players short. And I literally went to the grocery store, saw a guy who I had coached, and asked him if he'd be interested in playing. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, okay, good, you leave in three days. 
<laughs> and they like they assembled this roster at the last minute. Mike Brito, who is the legendary oh, yeah. Dodgers scout with the cigar and the Panama. Discovered hat. Fernando. Fernando uh, Julio Arias. He signed. Um, he was. Uh, the manager of that team and basically like did it as a personal favor. And so it was a lot of guys who were either not signed with one of the teams in Mexico or were Mexican American players or players who had moved to the U S and were free agents, that kind of thing. Um, so Mexico is a, a fascinating baseball um, landscape right now because there is so much going on with how they're trying to emphasize getting all those organizations on the same page. And now they have, they're kind of all under the umbrella of the Federation and there's so much synergy between all of them. But uh, yes, yeah, so we've got three events, as I understand it next year in Mexico, we'll have U 15s, women's and U 23s all Mexico. I'm blown. This year. I keep saying next year. I'm, I'm blown away. Yeah, that's right. We are in 2020. I'm, I'm blown away at the, your knowledge about all of these different federations uh, around the world. And, and if we can go back in the time machine again, yeah. and, and I can ask 18-year-old uh, Tyler Mon uh, what he thinks about a future in which he is going to know so much about all these different leagues around the world and, and how they operate. You know what's crazy is I, I've told people this before. If you could go back and talk to me when I graduated college and say, What's the coolest conceivable job you could ever think of? I would say, I don't know, something like broadcasting baseball while also traveling internationally, <laughs> which, like, didn't exist and probably shouldn't exist, but both exists and now is one of my jobs, and I have no idea how that happened. Um, the Like, that would be the coolest thing that I could have ever imagined at any of those stages. And I think what... You know, high school Tyler would have thought is like, man, all of that element of it sounds really boring. And it's it's the stuff that I'm almost most fascinated by now is the way the the politicking between these federations and their their youth sports and amateur arms and the professional ranks and all that. You know, the relationship between Major League Baseball and USA Baseball is fascinating to me. Um, and how opposite it is from Nippon Professional Baseball with Samurai Japan, which is the name of their national team, uh, or the KBO with Korea's national team. Um, that stuff is all so interesting to me because it, it's, it's almost like a geopolitical thriller kind of thing, but with very low stakes. There's not, you know, we're not <laughs> launching ICBMs at each other, um, but there's still a lot of that intrigue, which I find really cool. Um, and you know, it's, there are for every story of, you know, uh, a Joe Adele who, uh, was on the U S team for, Premier 12 and is, you know, probably going to be in an outfield with Mike Trout in the next couple of months. Um, you know, for every one of him from a national federation, there is a Mohamed Allo from South Africa or the South Africa team that went to the Europe and Africa qualifier in September in Italy. They basically got there on GoFundMe pages. They all, really? they all pay their own way. Um, you know, they, they would appeal to donors. They try to get a, a local TV station to do a story on them and then plug the GoFundMe stuff. And, um, you know, there's, the thing that ties everybody together is that they all love baseball. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love most about it. You know, we'll get games where we have four umpires who are from four different countries. And I'll talk to them afterwards and be like, how do you communicate? <laughs> like, well, I mean, you can pretty much do it. I mean, yeah. everybody speaks the language of baseball. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I'm endlessly fascinated by that stuff. I'm going to ask you to give uh, a little bit more advice to Amanda from Enterprise yes. and anyone else who is thinking about how they want to be able to travel the world and, um, and do something really fun that they love. But before you do that or while you're thinking about that, 
um, I'm going to share a story, which the more that we've had this discussion, I'm actually feeling a little bit guilty about something that I did last summer. <laughs> is, uh, is, is, is I, uh, there, there's a guy who follows me on Twitter, and, um, and I don't want to get too many details about what he does right now, but he, you know, he would rather be doing what we do. Right. And he really wants to, to basically like give up on what his current life situation is and, and be working in sports, be working in baseball, be working in broadcasting. And he asked if we could talk. And I said, yeah, of course. And so we talked on the phone uh, for about an hour um, one day this past season. And what I remember telling him at the start is you already know all the reasons why you want to do this, why you want to make this switch. I'm going to mostly tell you all the reasons why you shouldn't. And I'm not talking you out of it, but I really want to make sure that you understand that it's not as glamorous as it looks. And, And I try to explain to him how, you know, about pay and about weekends and about holidays and about nights and about being on the road and how tough that is on your social life and how tough that is if you have a dog and who's going to take care of the dog or if you have a family and how often, especially most people in minor league baseball, they're not making a lot of money or maybe they're seasonal or they're doing sales in the off season or they're doing all these other jobs. And, and I try to remind people about, okay, don't just focus on one sport because you're a great example. You get more opportunities. So anyway, so basically spend an hour and I don't know if I crushed this dude's dreams or thoughts or whether I changed his opinion or not, but I really wanted to make sure that he understood that yes, it's fun and it's, it's amazing but it can, but it can be deceptive. Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of like looking at someone's Instagram and going, "Wow, this person's life's amazing." Well, we're showing you the best parts of it that right. are amazing, and I don't want to turn this into a "woe is us" and get into the things that could be frustrating. But basically, I'm just continuing to stall as you think of really good advice to give to Amanda <laughs> or other people about just what it means to. Have something in the back of your mind that you're thinking that you want to do, whether it's in a different industry or whether it's within your industry, but it involves something else. And how you do that? <laughs> um, you know, I one of the things that I always think back on. Um, I remember getting into college and going to you know like freshman orientation, and them saying the average freshman changes their major five times. I remember thinking like, not me. I don't. I have never had a thought in my head of anything else that I would ever do. And me too. And I feel really lucky with that, as I'm sure you do, that it's I have always felt like it wasn't even an option. Like I never I never had it in my brain of like, oh maybe this isn't gonna work out someday and I'm gonna end up, you know, working in sales. I've never been I've never been of that mindset. Um, I was talking about this with uh, a much larger Rocky Twitter celebrity than me, Susie Hunter. Uh, which, <laughs> Might be the largest. <laughs> maybe. Um, and we were talking about how I said, I just don't connect with people who aren't passionate about something. And she said she felt the same way. And I said, it's kind of morbid, but the way I think of it is like, we all only get one shot at this. We're all going to die someday. So why would I waste all of this time doing something that I don't love? And to me, that's what I think it comes down to with a lot of people who are doing something that doesn't make them happy. Um, and it's, I think you did, a, a very big service to that guy. Cause I know I've had that same conversation where I've said, you see all the things that make this alluring to you. These are the things that are going to make it difficult. And you know, the same way I was saying earlier, like, I don't want to always tell people it's going to be okay. Cause for some people it's not going to be okay. That's the way life goes sometimes. Um, but if you are at a point in your life, if you're listening to this and you are, you know, 15 
or you're 20 and you're in college and trying to figure out what you want to do, or you're 45 and you're miserable doing whatever, and it feels worth it to change things up and to go for something because you love it, as long as you have the ability to do it while, you know, you're not putting a family out on the streets or something like that, like living while doing something that you love is so invaluable because as cliche as it is, like, I don't feel like I have a job. Everybody, I had somebody ask me recently, like, do you get stressed with this stuff? And I was like, no, because none of it really matters. Like, it's fun to me. You know what I mean? Like, if I don't, if I don't get the exact line down on my spotting board for what a day murky is shooting at the free throw line for the Denver Pioneers, the world is not going to crash and burn. It's going to be fine. Somebody can Google that. Um, so I feel lucky in that I have the, the ability to do something that I love while also being able to keep in perspective. Like life is so much more than that. But if you're doing something that doesn't make you happy and you see something that is out there that you feel like you could do and you could be good at, you have to be realistic about it and the fact that it's going to be difficult to get there. But if it's worth it for you and you can work your ass off and get to that point where you're doing something that makes you happy and lets you live that life, I, I am the last person on the planet to say don't go for that. And maybe I'm still just doe-eyed and too optimistic in a, a world that daily tries to rob us of all optimism, but I still feel like that's worth it. I don't feel like it's worth it to live a life where you're doing something that makes you miserable because this is the only shot that any of us get at any of it. And I know that the circumstances are not the same for everybody, and I feel very lucky you know, to, be a, to have grown up a, a middle-class white kid who went to Catholic school for my life and had opportunities just from that. I know that it's not the same. I know that it wasn't the same for a lot of kids that I went to high school with. We were at a relatively low income private school, but you know, it's still a private school. Like it's, yes, we had kids who came from really bad circumstances and got scholarships and financial aid and all that. And I feel really lucky that I was able to share and still share friendships with those kids. And I know that it's not easy for everybody to just say, here's something that I love. I got to go do it. I feel really lucky and I'm very mindful on a regular basis of the fact that, yeah, in a lot of ways I won the societal lottery in that category where I was able to pursue these things. Um, but if you're in a position where you feel like you can, regardless of your circumstance, I feel like you owe it to yourself to try because the saddest thing in the world to me is somebody who looks back and says, why didn't I at least go for it? Because even if you go for it and you fail, at least you went for it. As cliche as that is, it's so much worse to sit wondering what could have been about a circumstance than to go for it and not have it work out. Um, so it's, you know, I, I, especially the stuff that I've done internationally, like I, I pinch myself on a regular basis every single time I do one of these tournaments, you know, I'm in this, this beautiful little ballpark in Parma in Italy this year uh, where they had a, basically a ballpark chef who gives me this plate of, of noodles in this, this garlic and truffle oil with prosciutto, you know, prosciutto di Parma is from Parma, Parmesan cheese is from Parma. So it's a plate of, of this pasta with this, this garlic truffle oil sauce and this fresh prosciutto and Parmesan cheese. I took a picture of it and posted it on Instagram, on, on Twitter and said, uh, one summer in the Carolina League, I ate Papa John's every single day. <laughs> and at Papa John's, 
found the tweet and responded within like two minutes with a pizza emoji and the eyeball emojis. And I quote tweeted that and said, it wasn't a compliment, Papa John's. But like, I have these moments where it's just like, what is this life? And I get to feel very cool about the fact that things have worked out that way. And it's, you have to appreciate it. And that's one thing that, you know, when you slog through some bad times in life, I'm so much better at being able to appreciate the good things now, like being able to call a home run for a guy at the Tokyo Dome to give Japan the lead in the world championship game of a big tournament and hold my hand out to my broadcast colleagues to say, don't say anything, just let 45,000 people scream for the next 90 seconds so we can enjoy that too. And that's something that is so difficult in every aspect of life is just to like try to be where your feet are to steal one of Clint Hurdle's cheesy phrases that he used to use as the Rockies manager. But like, it's really true. Like if you can't have those moments where you appreciate something that's going good, then see if there's something that you can find in your life that is going to give you those moments and, and try to go for that. And, uh, I, I feel like the, the luckiest guy in the world when I get to do stuff like that. And, um, it's, you know, for every night that I've spent, you know, on a broken down bus trying to get to Salem, Virginia, unloading bags and waiting at 4 a.m. for another bus to come pick us up or, you know, having a, a flight canceled that, you know, puts us uh, in a hotel in Salt Lake City for three hours before red eye the next day or whatever it is. Like for all of those moments, still beats working at a bank. You know, it's still it's still all the the things that you could hope it would be in the best moments. All right, that's a really good way to end it, and your food story made me hungry, so let's yes. go get dinner. We're going to get tacos. <laughs> that was Tyler Mon, and this is Life Around the Seams. Mm-hmm.